The Hard Shoulder with Kieran Cuddy with Nissan on News Talk. This is the Hard Shoulder, Kieran Cuddy with you until seven o'clock. Now you may or may not have realised COP twenty eight kicks off in the United Arab Emirates later this week. So this is the conference of the parties, the big annual meeting where UN member states uh, convene to assess progress in dealing with uh, climate change. George Mombio is with me. He's an environmental activist, commentator. He's a Guardian columnist as well. George, you're welcome to the show. I know you've described these in the past as limp and abject failures. So is there is there any reason to be optimistic about COP28? Um, unfortunately, far from it. Uh, the, the head of the COP process, um, Sultan Jabba, is also the chief executive of the UAE oil company, the state oil company. And we've already heard that he's been planning to use the COP meeting to lobby other countries to take UAE oil and gas. He's got no mandate to do that. He's he's in an international role at the moment, um, supposedly negotiating on behalf of the world, but he's using it to push the particular interests of the UAE oil and gas sector when he's meant to be negotiating an end to oil and gas burning. It couldn't get worse. As, as a, that kind of makes a mockery of, of the entire conference. Are, are there are there other UN members who are, at least with a straight face, attempting to paint a more positive sheen on it? Well, the small states, um, the island states, the, the countries which are particularly vulnerable to climate breakdown, throughout the last few years, they've been really strong on these issues, but they just don't get a real role in decision making. You know, in principle, it's a democratic gathering where um, everybody has an equal say. But in practice, we know full well that a group of powerful nations will cluster in some um, sealed off room and and stitch it all up and then present it to the conference as a done deal. And what they will do, those powerful nations, is to ensure that fossil fuels are not left in the ground and that animal agriculture continues as usual. These are the two greatest threats to um, the global climate and neither of them will be properly addressed. So is COP no longer the best vehicle then to deal with these challenges? Should we be looking for something else? The truth is it's never been a good vehicle. There's been 27 of these meetings and 26 and a half of them have been abject failures. There was what, a what half success. was the good one? Yeah, that was um, Paris in 2015, where they at least created a framework for action. But unfortunately, that framework has just been mocked by what governments have done ever since. Now, in, in any other field, if you had failed 26 and a half out of 27 times, you might reassess what you were doing. And continuing to do the same thing while expecting different results is a well-known symptom <laughs> of madness. Uh, but here they are, plunging in yet again in even less auspicious circumstances than in the previous meetings because the head of the meeting is the head of the oil and gas company. So what what's, what's the major failure of it? Is it that, you know... The UN is 193 members. It is just too unwieldy. It is too big. You need to break it down and it needs to be approached kind of, I don't know, region by region. Is that the problem? Is the problem that the big powers don't take it seriously enough to kind of to, 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 to force others into line? 
Part of the problem, I think, is is the negotiating mode that um, in just about every other field of life, whether it's in business, whether it's in relationships, uh, whether it's in neighborhoods, um, whether it's in peace peacekeeping, um, there's been radical innovations in the way that negotiation happens. But in these COP meetings, it's like the Conference of Berlin in the 19th century. It's just, you know, countries getting together in a totally old-fashioned, traditional way to carve up the planet between them. And there's none of the innovation that we've seen elsewhere. And I think that's by design. I think in many ways, these meetings are designed to fail. But give the appearance of action. Yes, that's exactly right. Um, the, the whole idea is to say, don't worry, we've got this. You go home, carry on being good little shoppers. Don't go and sit on the street, whatever you do, because it's all under control. And the reality is, it's not at all. We've got the, the, the vampires in charge of the blood bank here. So, well, I mean, one could make a pretty good stab then at this stage at, at writing the newspaper report that would be published the day after this, isn't it? Kind of, you know, progress, uh, hailed as key progress in some areas, but kind of critics deriding it as as another last chance missed. Yeah, exactly. They'll all applaud themselves at the end of the meeting. They'll be applauding themselves to death. You know, they'll still be applauding themselves when the water is rising up round their necks um, because it's just one big exercise in self-congratulation. And, and I'm sorry to be cynical about this, but I've just watched too many of these summits. In fact, if you go back far enough, 1972 was the, the, the first summit which was meant to bring nations together to address the environmental crisis. And nothing of any substance has happened since then and and that's partly because you know we are not well represented we we are represented by people whose interests are not the interests of society they're the interests of the fossil fuel industry um and that's nowhere more evident than with, with the current leadership of, of of the cop meeting they're the interests of 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 the um, newspaper barons, they're, they're the interests of the other oligarchs and plutocrats and kleptocrats who wield real power today. And, you know, we, if we're going to address these issues, you know, we need profound democratic reform. We need to be getting the money out of politics. What would give you cause for hope? And maybe that's kind of a, 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 a pointless question with regards to COP28, but let's extend... Mm maybe our, our time frame a little bit beyond that. Yeah. So the hope comes from mass movements. It comes from people's movements. And this is why all over the world now, fossil fuel companies have been lobbying governments to introduce stringent, draconian new, new laws against protest and with great success. I mean, we've seen these incredibly undemocratic laws against protest passed in, in many nations, including here in the United Kingdom. Um, but it's it's amongst the people mobilizing that we see hope it's it's in the courage of the people mobilizing that we see hope we do not see it in this gathering of august personages in an air-conditioned resort um, um, in, in a place that is entirely governed by oil and gas if those people on the street are ignored and if it is the august personages who continue to steer the ship what will the world look like in 50 years time 
I'm afraid very large parts of the world will be uninhabitable. We we might even have seen Earth systems collapse, which is the reality. Of, you know, we talk about the sixth great extinction. What we're really looking at is the sixth great Earth systems collapse, of which extinction will be one symptom. Um, it, it will simply not be a hospitable planet for the majority of people who live here. And. When you say the majority of people who live here and, and you talk in the context of extinction, are you talking about kind of localised extinction then? Because that, that's one of the other um, perceptions or maybe misconceptions that exist in some people's minds, particularly in this part of the world, is that we're talking about problems that, you know, that exist for the Seychelles and the Maldives, but not necessarily for Ireland. It all depends how far it goes. So there's been some very interesting and alarming work recently by scientists on what's called the human climate niche. In other words, the conditions which permit human life to continue. And they project that even at relatively low levels of global heating, that niche will shrink significantly. But if we're looking at higher levels, two and a half, three degrees, which unfortunately are entirely plausible within this century, we're looking at very significant parts of the world no longer being able to to support human life. And of course, you know, here in the UK and in Ireland as well, we live in remarkably equable climates. We have um, very good soils. We, we, we are better insulated from disaster than most parts of the world are, but it will come to us um, eventually if action is not taken. The only question is, is when, it's how long it takes to hit even the most resilient parts of the world. George Monbiot, environmental activist and Guardian columnist. George, as always, thanks a million for joining us here on the show. The Hard Shoulder with Kieran Cuddy with Nissan. Weekdays from four on News Talk.